Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pop Culture Sociologist, the show where I analyze books, movies, and TV shows for your enjoyment. I'm Marina Berlin. I've been a media and culture critic since 2011, and in this very special episode, I'll be answering your questions about everything from the process of writing the episodes for the podcast to my opinions on K.J. Charles and Motherland Fort Salem, Harry Potter, cultural differences, different sociological questions, and basically all the things you asked and wanted to know about. Okay, let's get started. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you again to everyone who has supported this podcast. There will be timestamps in the description of the episode if you want to skip ahead to a specific question. Before we get started, I just wanted to say this is the first unscripted episode I've ever recorded for Pop Culture Sociologist. It's a very different format from the other episodes. Um, I'm sure I will talk differently than I do when I'm reading scripted content. So I hope you enjoy that. I certainly wanted to do something different and see how people like it uh, or respond to it. So I would love to hear from you and I hope you enjoy the episode. So these questions were submitted on several different platforms on Patreon, which again, thank you to everyone who supports me there from Facebook, from Twitter, from Dreamwith. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I hope my answers will be interesting. One last thing before we get started. I really debated whether to assign names to and basically mention who asked the question before I read out each question. I'm always torn on this because I think the common conception is that people always like to be acknowledged and, and hear their names. But I personally really, really hate it when I submit a question for a Q&A or whatever and they read out my name, maybe because I have a history of people mispronouncing my name or something like that. But I just I really don't care about being named. It feels kind of embarrassing. I just want them to answer my question. So I went with that instinct, uh, since no one specifically mentioned that they really would like me to specifically say their name, I would rather go the route of not potentially embarrassing anyone or mispronouncing a name. So I'm just going to read out the questions uh, in some kind of order. And uh, as I said, there are timestamps in the description, so you can skip to the next question if a particular question doesn't speak to you. And since this episode is unscripted, it will also likely not have a transcript unless someone volunteers to write one. All right, let's get started. The first question is, I would love to hear about the writing process for each episode. If there's a standard process, and if so, what is it? I guess I'll start from how the writing process begins. When I started the podcast, when I kind of it took me a long time to really start it in the sense that I had to convince myself to really do it because I was very, very, very afraid of taking on another side project when I already have a side project, which is my writing and my book. And uh, I happen to have a lot more free time because of COVID. And I was like, I think I think I can make this work, but I don't really know. And I had these like multiple steps of just constantly telling myself, well, you have to get this done. And if you don't get this done, then you don't do the podcast. So one of the things that I told myself I had to do in advance is be very, very clear about the scope of the project. 
So I had to be, you know, I had to decide on an update schedule. I had to decide on uh, a specific kind of theme, which means getting uh, a a graphic and, you know, like kind of knowing what the look of the podcast was going to be, what the title was going to be. So I was in this really weird, funny situation where (laughs) I agonized over like the, the promo image or the cover image for the podcast and about the title far more than about the content. Uh, I had nothing like, you know, nothing ready in terms of content, but I spent weeks kind of deciding what the podcast was going to be called. Uh, I really consulted a lot of people. I worked on graphics and all of that stuff. And the reason was that I knew that the easiest part of the podcast was going to be coming up with content because I have been a critic for many years. I've been kind of published and, I don't know, professional or paid for it or whatever since 2011. But obviously, I've been a critic for much, much longer than that. I've been a critic for a very long time. Uh, I mean, a very big proportion of my life has been spent writing about media or thinking about media or coming up with, you know, or just having ideas about media. And um, the kind of ideas that I talk about on the podcast, the kind of like, you know, if every episode has a thesis... Basically, if you lift the top of my head, right, like the top of my skull, my brain will be full of many, 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 many ideas like that at any given time. So after I had the image and the title and the schedule and like everything around it, after I had all of that decided and I felt like this was a project that was well-defined enough that I could commit to it. Then I basically wrote down a list of, I was like, okay, well, let's see, let's see how many ideas I have or like, you know, whatever. And I took out my like notes app on my phone and I literally wrote down, I think about 10 ideas just off the top of my head. And every idea was like, something that could be its own episode and something that wouldn't require any kind of research that wouldn't require a lot of work in terms of developing the idea or anything like that. So I have had that list, you know, from the beginning. So the writing process, I think, really begins with that list, obviously, because that's that's really the idea, the core. And I originally took that list and I divided it into two seasons because I knew that I could not put out more than six or seven episodes per year, like scripted episodes. So I decided there would be six kind of scripted episodes per season. And this way I had enough material for two seasons. I don't know if the second season will happen just in terms of whether I'll have time to to work on it. But in terms of ideas or like, you know, episodes, uh, that part is ready. Like that part doesn't require any additional work for me. And you know, hasn't required it basically for, for most of this podcast. So basically the writing process for each episode has been that I go to my, what I think of as a set list for seasons one and two. And um, I, you know, decide which of the six episodes that I designated for season one is the one I want to put out next. Um, that's also why I don't usually commit to what the next episode will be until fairly late in the game just because I want the flexibility of choosing a particular idea that works, I think, better in a particular place in the season that will take a certain amount of time to process or think about or whatever, depending on how much time I have and things like that. And after I've chosen an idea, often I will do not really research, but I will do what I think of as canon review which means uh, most of these ideas are about works of fiction, whether that's books or TV shows or movies or whatever, 
that I watched or read a pretty long time ago, often years. And um, I just sometimes go and kind of double check various details. Maybe that's like reading up on Wikipedia to make sure I, everything I remember, I remember correctly. Sometimes it's um, rewatching or rereading. That process can be everything from, you know, me really sitting down and reading things or watching things like watching an entire season of something, kind of rewatching it. Or it can be just me spending like a week, a week and a half, just kind of idly thinking about a particular canon, just trying to remember it, trying to make sure that everything is correct, that I stand behind everything I say 100%, that my analysis isn't based on some kind of detail that I'm misremembering or something like that. It's very important to me when the podcast comes out that I 100% stand behind everything I say. And then I find uh, the time to actually write down the podcast episode. That process of writing down has changed over time. In the first episodes, I was a little more hesitant and the format was new for me. Uh, you know, having a podcast was new for me. And I had kind of a longer beta process uh, where I would basically do a an alpha version or a beta version or whatever you want to call it of the podcast where I would just <laughs> I would just record audio messages to a friend she knows who she is and it would almost be like the same 30 minutes and I would just record the podcast with no script uh with nothing just to get the thoughts out there and usually it would help me like the text of what I would record for my friend and the final text of the podcast wouldn't be very different. It just in that way, it would help me organize my thoughts a bit and be like, okay, these thoughts should be in, in like their own section. These thoughts like should go together, things like that. After that initial like alpha recording or whatever it is, that's just a way for me to speak it out, if you will. I have the whole thing in my head and it's pretty organized and I sit down and I write a script and, um, you know, I just write down literally the, the same thoughts that I had when speaking into my phone and recording voice messages. Again, in the initial episodes, I would kind of do a beta process on that. Phrasing is very important to me. I feel like the podcast, the difference between the podcast and having the same experience if we're just like sitting down for tea or uh, just hanging out and I just talk at you about these ideas, which is what happens. You know, that's what the podcast is based on. Just the experience of sitting down with friends and talking about the stuff. The difference is with friends, I feel like I have the benefit of context where people know me, they know what I mean, they know my background, things like that. With the podcast, I try to be much more precise in phrasing. I try to add a lot more disclaimers because I know people will be listening to it out of context, not necessarily knowing who I am and things like that. Uh, sometimes I can't contextualize everything. Sometimes there aren't enough disclaimers that I put in or could put in. But I do try to do that, and that's really what the writing stage is for, because the writing stage for me isn't for coming up with the ideas or developing the ideas. Again, I kind of feel like I have the idea pretty much done at like off the top of my head, because, uh, you know, I, that's why I wrote it down in my initial set list. Once I start recording voice messages, it's just literally off the top of my head, and it's very, very similar to the final product. The real difference in the writing is that it's a little bit more organized and that it's much more suitable for people who don't know me. So everything is, the phrasing is more precise. There's a lot more disclaimers, you know, things like that. 
that's the writing process. I will say that it's it hasn't really been standard if you look at the six scripted episodes of season one, but it has been very similar. So for example, with, with the first episode about how Hannibal is the best existing adaptation of Lolita, I didn't have a script. I didn't really see a need for a script. I really, I did like the voice recording version, uh, like to a friend and then just wrote down what I was going to talk about in bullet points. I think it took less than a page, you know, it took maybe like half a page, uh, in total, everything that I wrote down for myself. And just like, it was basically just to keep the order of things straight and make sure I don't like skip a section. And I just started recording. So what you hear in the first episode is literally just me talking off the top of my head. But there were a few drawbacks to that. Number one, that it was much harder to do uh, any kind of beta process because um, once I showed the finished product to people, any notes that they had re required me to record additional audio, edit it, uh, just kind of deal with audio when I could be dealing with text, which is much easier in the editing stage. And additionally, after the episode came out, people pointed out that it wasn't accessible to them and that they couldn't enjoy the podcast because they were hard of hearing or because audio just didn't work for them. And that was something that I knew going in. I knew that obviously that format, I mean, podcasts in general were going to be not some people's cup of tea. But as someone who has a disability, once the podcast actually came out, I found that even though I'm an indie creator who, you know, it's just me doing this as a side project. It's not like some big company. It's not even a group of people who could like do this jointly or anything like that. I still found that I just couldn't I I was just after the first episode came out I was like oh this is never happening again uh if I can help it and then I looked into different options and different like mechanical transcription and things like that nothing really worked for me uh and the way that I produced the podcast so I was like okay fine I'll I'll just I'll just write scripts and that way there's you know for accessibility there's always a transcript and it'll be a little bit easier for me in the editing stage Having said that, the process also changed over the episodes. So again, the, the beta stage or the editing stage for uh, the initial text version and also for the audio version, because I would send, usually I would send the audio to a few friends just to get their feedback on like how, you know, the voice clips, you know, whether there were too many or too little or if they worked or there were audio issues or things like that. As I became more confident, as I got a better handle on the format, I did that less and less. So the textual format really became by halfway through the season kind of became mostly for accessibility. And that takes me like writing down the text of the episode, which is usually it comes out to, I think, a little over 10 pages um, in, in Google Docs. And I think it's, and I, I don't remember how many thousands of words, just over 10 pages in Google Docs. And writing out 10 pages, you know, it doesn't even matter what the text is, but just writing out 10 pages takes time. So that definitely adds quite a bit to like the production time. But I, that's the part that I don't find too cumbersome because again, it doesn't feel like work really. I'm just transcribing what's in my brain. I'm not like working hard 
to, you know, to, to come up with a concept or shape it or anything like that. And um, at this point, I really just do it for accessibility. And I'm, I mean, I wish I wish I didn't have to. I wish there was a good way to do it mechanically. Maybe I'll find that way at some point in the future. Uh, I know that YouTube is kind of like an option that I've looked at. Uh, maybe that's where, you know, things will go. But at this point, the process is I have my set list. Uh, I choose an idea. I kind of live with the idea for a little while, whether that's kind of doing canon review or just kind of giving myself some space and time to get back into thoughts about that canon. I sometimes, at this point, very rarely do an initial audio recording. I just go straight into just like opening a document and writing, <laughs> writing out like 10 pages, however long that takes me. And then uh, I will usually ask like one or two friends to look it over. They usually have pretty minor comments and I, I change things, you know, based on their comments. And then it's time to record. So thank you for that question. I, I didn't think about like the writing process. I think still in my head, it's like there is no writing process. Like these are ideas that I specifically selected because they don't require a writing process. They don't require research. They don't require like a lot of thought. Uh, these are all things that I just have off the top of my head that don't require a lot of work. So thank you for that question. It really made me uh, stop and think about that process. Oh, I will say there was one episode that was an exception to this kind of like rule. And that's uh, KG Charles and the Devil's Mistress episode. That was an episode that was incredibly difficult to write that I really struggled with. Sometimes I'll take an idea off of the set list. And when I start writing it out, I feel like the idea just isn't coming together. Or rather, <laughs> it's not that that sometimes happens. That happens specifically on that episode. I knew I wanted to do something about uh, historical dramas. And I had a, a lot of ideas. I thought about talking about Gentleman Jack, which is a wonderful show about Dickinson, uh, which is a show about Emily Dickinson, KJ Charles books, uh, The Devil's Mistress, like all these other like black sales, just all these other historical kind of media that I really like and that I want to talk about, but for whatever reason, uh, well, I know, probably I know what the reason was. That was the episode that came after an unexpected break due to both things in my personal life and things that were happening kind of domestically, globally, whatever. There, there was a lot going on, and I knew that I would have to pause the, the schedule for the podcast, and that was the episode that I kind of paused on. I started working on it before everything happened, and then when I picked it up again, I had to work on it and I found that the thesis just didn't really work anymore. Things weren't coming together. I just, I didn't have like a good idea that I really stood behind that could carry like 30 minutes and, and all of that. And that episode I worked on longer than any other episode by far. And that was the episode that I really struggled with and that I changed a few times, even though it was like the theme of it kind of remained, but I played around with different ideas. So yeah, that was the one exception where the writing was very noticeable to me and I struggled with it a lot. Okay, the next question is, do you start from a phenomenon and look for suitable works? or vice versa? This is a wonderful question because I've never thought of it that way. 
I definitely don't start from the phenomenon, at least in my head. Again, because I have a set list and kind of a list of ideas, all of these ideas are ideas that I've had usually for years that I've kind of been carrying around and have been unable to sell to editors for various reasons because I haven't found like the right publication or the right editor or because I just didn't have like the energy and the time to work hard on pitching things, which is really how you sell things as an independent uh, critic, as a freelance critic. Because so much of my focus is on fiction writing, at some point I had to step away from really pitching a lot of my nonfiction ideas. So all of these ideas are just like my babies that I that I really love, that I I will always talk your ear off about, and that that I haven't managed or haven't tried selling to editors. So in that sense, they're all kind of complete ideas that are not based on like a phenomenon. They're they're specific to the specific works. And the process of coming up with them is kind of so organic in my head that I don't think of the phenomenon and the works as separate, even though I I totally get how they can be. And I think sometimes eventually they are. So for example, you know, if we take Fort Salem, the, the last episode that I did, Fort Salem and Matriarchies, when I watched Fort Salem Motherland, I had, you know, while I was watching, I had this idea. I was like, oh, oh my goodness, this is doing a matriarchy kind of counter to all the rules about how you're supposed to do matriarchy. This is amazing. So I had the idea for what eventually became the episode, you know, in a very kind of detailed way in my head, immediately upon watching that show. When I read N.K. Jameson's The Fifth Season, I was immediately like, oh, this is doing some really amazing things with like the X-Men problem. Uh, So I had that idea immediately upon reading the book. So these ideas come to me kind of fully formed and they always start from the works themselves. Having said that, sometimes I know that I want to talk about a particular phenomenon and if I suddenly see that the episode isn't coming together, isn't working out, whatever, I might swap uh, one of the works that's related to that phenomenon for a different work and kind of reconstruct the episode based on that. But sometimes that doesn't really work out. So like, for example, in the episode about KG Charles and the Devil's Mistress, I was kind of able to do that. I was able to keep the theme of historical fiction and how we represent it and what it means and power differences and things like that, like social power differences. But for example, I wanted to do an episode about uh, The Punisher and because I wanted to do, at some point I looked at the set list for season one and I was like, oh, I would really love to do an episode about masculinity and how how masculinity is portrayed and like the, the tropes around it and how a lot of the media counteracts those tropes and things like that. And um, I really wanted to do something with The Punisher. And then I rewatched The Punisher to make sure that like my thesis held. I rewatched the first season and <laughs> I realized I cannot make this work anymore because things have changed. I I think I was re-watching Punisher in the beginning of 2021, uh, I think maybe in February, and um, that was very soon after certain events happened in the U.S., things that had to do with like the kind of Donald Trump losing the election. And at that point in time, re-watching Punisher, I felt like the show had gone from being at least mildly vague in, in how it would be politically perceived to being very, very strongly identified with essentially white supremacy. And uh, not because the show had changed, obviously, but because things in the world had changed. And I just couldn't, 
I couldn't do that. I couldn't talk about a show like that in that moment in time and be like, oh, yeah, let's just let's ignore everything. Let's just talk about like the portrayals of masculinity and let's not touch on the whole like white supremacy thing. So I ended up scrapping that episode and I I could have done a different episode about masculinity and about portrayals of masculinity, but I chose not to because I didn't have a really good idea and a really good work of fiction that I wanted to talk about that would be the kind of theme that I wanted to discuss and things like that. So, um, yeah, if I don't have the specific work that I want to talk about, the phenomenon itself is not going to be an episode. So, yeah, I would say I, I definitely start from the works, even though, again, it's not like it's not that I like watch a show or read a book and I'm like, well, what interesting thing can I say about this? I mean, I do do that, but I do that for other purposes, not for the podcast. I do that when I when I'm trying to uh, promote a work, when I'm trying to get more of my friends to read it, things like that. Uh, when I'm trying to spread the word. But on the podcast, I deliberately didn't want to do that. I wanted to choose only like fully baked ideas that stood on their own, that offered their own value beyond just like spreading the word and telling people how cool this particular work was. I love doing that too. But like I said in the previous question, I needed the scope of the podcast to be very precise in order to commit to it. And that was part of that scope. Okay. The next question is, in writing the episodes and analyzing media, how prominent is your inner author versus the former sociology student? I would say that the podcast is mostly me as the former sociology student, but mostly just me as a critic, which is, again, something that I kind of had to step away from when I started doing fiction more seriously. I spent most of my life thinking that what I wanted to be was a critic. That was my dream job, to just be a critic full-time. And I started kind of, you know, I was a blogger for many years, and then I got my first, like, paying gigs, and it was in kind of genre venues, and then I got more gigs in, or kind of more articles in more and more and more mainstream and, like, large venues. And then eventually I was offered a full-time position as a freelancer at a new magazine that was opening up. And, and I was supposed to be one of their critics, full-time critics. And uh, it was a really, really amazing opportunity. And that was really the point in my life when I realized that I <laughs> didn't want to be a critic full-time. I actually wanted to write fiction. And writing fiction appealed to me more than writing criticism and more than being a media critic. And so I kind of stepped away from being a critic very consciously and focused on writing fiction, but I still really, really, really love doing media criticism and analysis. And uh, so the podcast is just my way of getting back to that without having to invest the kind of effort that you have to invest in order to, you know, get that kind of thing happening, uh, which is mostly just pitching a lot of ideas, being on top of things, like knowing editors, knowing what what's coming out, what's hot, what's happening, you know, kind of constantly generating ideas, tailoring them to what publication wants, all of that stuff. The podcast to me felt like much more chill, much more relaxed. I could have also done this as like blog posts, right? Like every episode of the podcast could have just been a blog post, but it wasn't mostly because I just didn't want to go back to writing blog posts for these kinds of ideas, which were ideas that I thought were kind of sophisticated enough or interesting enough to get editorial interest. But again, did not have the energy to pitch, uh, or they were just ideas that were very, very difficult to pitch because the larger a venue or publication is, the harder it is to sell them on something that 
doesn't tie into something that's very, very now, that's very, very current in some way. And a lot of these ideas were things that I, you know, that were not very current. For example, you know, like Hannibal and Lolita, that's like an idea that like Hannibal is kind of an old show at this point. It's not that it was impossible. It was just, it would just be a difficult sell to an editor. At least I felt that way. Anyway, so that was the point of having the podcast. So I would say that definitely, if anything, like the podcast was to soothe the parts of me that were not my inner author. So probably much more the former sociology student. For those of you who may not know, I have a a bachelor's and master's in sociology and uh, mostly my, you know, the media critic uh, inside me, that that part of me is really what the podcast is for. Okay, the next question is, how do you balance between choosing topics that are popular slash catchy enough to be interesting to others and avoiding topics that are overdone? So I think these are two separate questions. I'll answer the second part first about choosing topics that are not overdone. I know that I'm not choosing a topic that's overdone, at least to the best of my knowledge, because if I feel like I'm coming even close to saying something that I've seen other people say before, then I'm immediately bored to tears with it and lose all interest or desire to record an episode about it. I'm bored extremely easily, and I have zero interest in ever repeating things that other people have said and, I don't know, pretending that this is my own idea or anything like that. So unless I'm citing someone, there's just absolutely no way that I'm going to do an episode on something that I've already seen done, uh, not even in the mainstream or not even like being super popular but literally about anything that I've ever seen done, period, in any venue. So, for example, this was a concern for me with the Game of Thrones episode because I really wasn't sure that my thesis was kind of new enough or that it had anything to add to the discourse on Game of Thrones because I felt like everyone's already said so many things about Game of Thrones. Everyone's talked about it endlessly, you know, everything there is to be said has been said. Having said that, I haven't seen like a cohesive, you know, rundown of the the Lyanna Stark situation with the patriarchy with like the particular way that I talk about it in that episode. But I had a real kind of like mini crisis where I was like, I feel like this is way too obvious. I feel like everyone already knows this. A lot of things that were already kind of popular and mainstream in Game of Thrones discourse, or at least that I had seen said and done in Game of Thrones discourse, in A Song of Ice and Fire discourse, and you could put them together and kind of arrive at what my main thesis is in the episode, which is that Lyanna Stark is this really interesting commentary on the patriarchy that was kind of missed very interestingly in the show. I haven't seen that thesis kind of laid out in that way anywhere, uh, which maybe it has been laid out, but I haven't seen it. But I felt like you could arrive at it like by yourself, by just kind of adding everything that was already out there. So I showed that episode to a bunch of friends and I kind of that was the one that I agonized about. And I was like, is this too obvious? Is this too on the nose? Is this something that's everyone already knows this? Everyone who cares about this, this canon, these books, this show, is it just like stating the obvious? Is that what it is? And my friends kind of assured me that they hadn't seen things laid out in that way anywhere either. 
and that kind of calmed me down. So the question of how do I avoid topics that have been overdone, I think I'm just a very good gauge for myself uh, of things that have been overdone. Obviously, maybe everything I'm saying has been done or has been said elsewhere and I just haven't seen it. That's very possible. But since I do care about like media and I do read a lot of discourse and things like that, I feel like I have a pretty good gauge. So that's the second part of the question. Now, the first part about how do I choose something that's kind of like popular or catchy enough to be interesting. So for me, again, it's just a question of going into my like mental bank of ideas that I have at any given time. And there's like endless amounts of stuff in there and fishing out things that would be a good fit for the podcast. And I think the thing that I've learned as a critic, having started over many times on different platforms, is that you you kind of earn people's trust, you earn their attention. And I think I wanted in the first season to try and choose works that were fairly popular, because I think it takes time for people to be willing to follow you into something that's much more niche. Having said that, I would never decide not to do an episode because I couldn't find something popular enough or anything like that. I also did an episode, for example, about K.G. Charles and her books and The Devil's Mistress. The Devil's Mistress is a show that barely anyone has watched. K.G. Charles is very popular, but you can't compare her popularity to the popularity of Game of Thrones or Person of Interest, which is, you know, a mainstream show or even Hannibal or the book Lolita or anything like that. So I would say that that episode is probably the most niche episode, if not the Motherland Fort Salem one. But at least that one is kind of about matriarchy. So that's a much, much broader topic. But uh, the one about KG Charles and the Devil's Mistress, that was, you know, I think that's a pretty niche topic, ultimately. So I still did that. And I didn't, I wasn't concerned with, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't catchy enough. This isn't popular enough. But having said that, I will say that out of all of my ideas, I do try, especially again, in the first season, I have tried to pick out ones that were a little more maybe well-known or like works that people, that more people have read or seen, because I think it takes time to build an audience's trust. And it takes time to get to the point where people will say, well, I'll listen to anything she's talking about because it's interesting because she's always interesting. Hopefully, you know, if you ever get to that point. So to earn that trust, it is a good idea to start from things that people would listen to, maybe if, even if they're not sure if you're like, the best fit for them. So yeah, I guess my answer is I just, I look at all of my existing ideas and I do try to find things that are fairly kind of have a fairly broad appeal, but I don't stress out over it too much. Like ultimately, if I have a good idea that I believe in and that I really stand behind and there's nothing really better that fits my time and that fits like, you know, the shape of the season and things like that, I will go with that even if the work is a little less popular. I certainly don't spend a lot of time kind of obsessing or thinking about, is this popular enough? Do enough people know about it? Will it have a broad enough appeal? I do think about that a little bit in the stage of choosing ideas, but I don't super stress out about it or anything like that. And I think that that's also in part because I have so many years as a blogger and so many years as a critic. And I know that sometimes things, if you're very fortunate, things become popular and things become, you know, they resonate and, and people quote you and things like that. And sometimes you do your best work and like no one reads it. So um, 
that's always been my philosophy. As long as I'm having fun, as long as I believe in the idea, as long as I'm enjoying myself, it doesn't really matter if there is or isn't an audience. Okay. And the next question is, who do you think is the perfect slash target audience for the podcast? This is a great question. Definitely shows a basic understanding of marketing uh, when it comes to creative endeavors. I thought about this question when I came up with the podcast, because as I said, I came up with all of the like technical things about it or like the administrative stuff about it before I actually started working on content. So I did ask myself that question because it's a good question to ask if you're trying to narrow down the scope of a project. But the answer to that became less about who the target audience is and more about who the target audience isn't. When I was studying sociology, there was this saying that kind of everyone agreed on that the longer you spend studying sociology, the less fit you are to have just casual conversations in public, like at parties or at social events or things like that with just like regular people. Like you just become completely ill-suited for it. You become just absolutely terrible at casual conversations because the thing you do in sociology is if, I mean, you know, speaking about it very crudely and very broadly, if in year one of sociology you take, let's say, a bunch of like 101 classes and those classes are about saying like racism exists, you know, here's how we know, here's how we measure it, here's the data, here's like all of this stuff patriarchy exists, you know, this is what it looks like, this is why, this, this, you know, here's the data, here's the studies, all of that. Let's say that that's your first semester. And after that, the sort of the longer you spend in sociology, the more kind of advanced conversations you have about, you know, you don't need to talk about whether racism is real anymore, or whether patriarchy is real, or whether colonialism is real, or, or things like that. You assume that that's the case, and then you move on to discussing the nuances of how things happen. And then you move on to even more nuances, and even more nuances, and even more, you know, how things are interconnected, and how these different aspects of social existence impact each other, and how they interact with different disciplines, and, you know, all of these things. And you kind of get into more and more complicated things that are all based on these basic assumptions. And then you <laughs> go out into the real world and you just hang out with people like at a party or at a social event or whatever. And you have a conversation and you realize that you're talking to someone who doesn't even necessarily agree that the patriarchy exists, you know, or that racism exists, who thinks that whether or not the patriarchy exists is a matter of opinion, you know, or whether like racism affects like our society is just a matter of opinion. And everyone has an opinion and you're allowed to have your opinion, but it's just an opinion. And then you get really frustrated. And this is something that happens to a lot of people who study sociology within academia. This is a known side effect because you kind of start to feel like, like a physicist who has to interact with people in the real world and half the people they meet act like gravity is just an opinion. Newtonian physics are just, you know, are just an opinion, which they are. Everything is a theory, right? Like everything in Western science or, or things like that, everything is a theory. But again, <laughs> there's a difference between saying gravity is a theory and we're working on it within the scope of, you know, the scientific method and saying, oh, gravity is fake because I decided that it's fake because like, you know, it's just your opinion that gravity exists. And my opinion is something else. So or like being a doctor who is constantly being told that the existence of the immune system is 
just an opinion. You know, it's just your opinion. You know, you can dis just disagree on it. You can just be like, oh, no, I think that's fake. And if you think that it's not fake, if you think that the immune system really exists, then you're just really uptight, you know, and you're like really full of yourself and you, you think you're always right. You think your degrees, you know, mean that you're always right, but you're not. And you have to allow space for other people's opinions that the immune system doesn't exist and gravity isn't real. And you start to feel that way because you kind of start to feel a little bit like, like someone who's lost their mind because you're like, but these are these are just facts. They're facts. There's there's data. There's research. There's no it's not it's not up for debate. You know, there's you can discuss the details. And obviously, it's just a theory. And obviously, it's changing all the time. And obviously, it's important to be critical of it. But you can't just say that gravity isn't real. Or you can't say that to a physicist and then act like, you know, the physicist is really full of themselves if they tell you that you're completely wrong. So that's kind of what that feels like. I definitely feel like ever since I finished my master's in sociology and have spent more time away from academia and sociology, I've become more and more fit for casual conversations again because I'm forgetting so much and I'm moving away from that very, very cool, very, very nourishing kind of my favorite place in academia where we are all sociologists and we all have this lens of looking at the world and seeing all of these social processes. But the more I move away from that space, the more fit I am to just exist in society and not blow my top when uh, someone decides to say that the existence of lungs is just an opinion. So the podcast was my way of not having to do one-on-one conversations. That was my rule. My rule was I'm not explaining what the patriarchy is on this podcast or you know like I did explain it in the episode on matriarchies but just because I needed like a very short definition to define a matriarchy but I'm going to assume that everyone listening already knows what the patriarchy is and knows that it exists I'm going to assume that everyone listening already knows what racism is and that it exists you know on a basic level and what I'm going to do is the one of two conversations or like the little more kind of advanced conversations where we analyze things without bothering to explain what the basics are. And that was my goal. And that was part of the reason that I put the word sociology in the title, because I wanted people to know. And I, you know, I felt like if you are the kind of person who doesn't think that the patriarchy exists or that racism exists or things like that, or that there's social stratification, or, you know, a person who thinks that sociology is fake and thinks it's just, I don't know, like liberal bullshit or things like that, then maybe this podcast isn't for you. Or, you know, like, I think you would still probably enjoy it if you gave it a chance. Maybe it would broaden your horizons. Maybe it would change your opinions about things, or I don't know, just give you a perspective, a different perspective. But I just want to be very upfront and honest about what this is. Because I'm not going to do the one-on-one -on -one conversations. I'm not going to give basic definitions. This is not a podcast that introduces you to basic concepts in sociology. Uh, there's lots of other podcasts that do that. There's, there's lots of other media for that. It's a very, 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 very important work. And I don't want to, for a second, imply that it's less important or, or anything like that. It's very, very important. But having said that, that was my rule. That was, I'm, I'm willing to kind of lose listeners who, who don't 
agree with those basic concepts. I don't think that the podcast is inaccessible if you don't know what the, you know, kind of what the patriarchy is or what racism is. I don't think it's inaccessible. Maybe it is. I don't know. Someone should tell me. Okay, the next question is a question about the last episode. Are you going to revisit the topic after watching the second season of Motherland Fort Salem? I'm really curious to hear what you'll have to say about it in comparison and in general. So the last episode, to remind everyone, is uh, about matriarchies and motherland Fort Salem. Like all the episodes, you don't need to know anything about either matriarchies or the show in order to follow along and enjoy it. It's a really, really good question about uh, season two because the episode is about explicitly about season one. When I started working on the episode, season two was still airing and I deliberately avoided watching it because I was like, I'm going to do an episode about it. I've had this idea ever since I watched season one. I feel like since the season is incomplete, I mean, second season two, it would be a bad idea to watch it while I'm working on this episode about season one uh, because it'll influence me maybe and it'll still not be a complete kind of picture because I won't have the full second season and it'll just muddle things potentially, so I would rather avoid that. But obviously, I am planning to watch season two. I will say that I did kind of consult a little bit with friends who were watching season two as it aired, and I told them roughly what I was going to talk about in the episode, and I was like, do you think there's anything in season two that really like contradicts those points? And they said no, but, you know, they could have been wrong. I have no idea, which is why I definitely also didn't mention anything about season two in the episode. But it's, it's very possible that there are contradictions. I don't know. Uh, TV shows often change. I will say that I had a really, really <laughs> good idea that I like really, really loved um, about Ted Lasso, the TV show. And after watching season one, uh, I was going to talk about his style of leadership. And then <laughs> seasons, season two came out and then season three came out. Uh, I think season three is currently airing. And I was like, oh, I guess this is <laughs> a different kind of show now. And uh, or at least it's not no longer doing the things, the specific things that I wanted to talk about in season one. And I can't really ask an audience to, I can't be like, oh, I'm only talking about season one when there's already three seasons out and it's not reasonable to assume that an audience will be able to differentiate, you know, when they're listening to the episode. And it's going to be really, really hard to just focus on season one. Like in practice, everyone's just going to think of the show as a whole and not remember any real differences between season one and the following seasons. I already see that in a lot of friends who like, you know, don't think of the show as having gone through any kind of change in between season one and season two and three. And uh, so I had to like at this point, I, I've kind of scrapped that idea that I was really deeply in love with <laughs> because uh, because Ted Lasso changed, you know, in the meantime, it was on my lineup for season two and I'm going to have to replace it with something. So absolutely, you know, Motherland, Fort Salem, I knew that potentially season two was going to be very different, but I was OK for the moment in time when the episode was released. I was OK saying you know, this is just about season one, but I'm absolutely planning to watch season two. I doubt that it will be its own episode. I mean, I don't know, but I have not met a show so far that I have wanted to do two episodes about, but who knows? I want to say, you know, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I don't know if any thoughts will make it onto there, but uh, that's uh, where things are. Okay. And the next question is, 
In the episode on Motherland Fort Salem, you touched a bit on the issue of loyalty to a team made up entirely of women. Are there more examples of female partnerships and female friendships in the media that you love? What a great question that forced me to confront how few female friendships and partnerships there are in media, Um, or at least, you know, the kind that I really like. I think the example that I'm going to choose for this answer is a show called The Hundred. I'm going to say that I'm privileging here uh, shows that are actually about a female protagonist. Uh, I think there are a lot of shows where you have supporting characters who are women who who have really great relationships with each other. And that's really, really great. But if the main character is a guy and all of that is kind of happening in the background, for me, that's something that I'm less excited about. So I would say (laughs) the show The Hundred. I know that this is a show that has had a really interesting fandom. I think in some circles it's considered to be like a very good show. In some circles it's considered to be very bad. I was planning to have an episode in season two about The Hundred that would be the same kind of episode as the person of interest episode in season one about Root and Shaw. But the truth is there's a lot of really interesting things that The Hundred does. There's also a lot of really not interesting things that that show does. But one of the really interesting things there is kind of the relationships, the platonic relationships in general, and specifically the relationships between women, especially in the later seasons, which are the seasons that I've watched most recently, but also in the earlier seasons. But I think there was a period when the show kind of moved in the direction of eliminating female characters and focusing more and more on male characters. And then thankfully, and to my enormous surprise, it moved away from that. And then by the time you get to like seasons six and seven, I think, like maybe, I don't remember if it's true for five, probably not, but for seasons six and seven, and certainly by the end of the show, you get to a situation where most of the characters on the show are just women who are in various platonic relationships with each other. There's a particular storyline that I really love on The Hundred where two characters who are both villains or like former villains who are both women who basically kind of get put into, oh, by the way, sorry, like spoiler warning for The Hundred, even though it's kind of very vague. These two women basically go off into this like kind of pocket dimension and they hate each other and they're they're both villains and, and very different kinds of villains. And then they just get like tossed into this pocket dimension where from which there is no escape. And they're just stuck there in, (laughs) uh, if you know the trope, then like in this kind of Canadian shack, but just basically in, in a shack. And then they're there with a child that they have to raise. And they just spend like 20 years raising this child or or I don't know 10 years whatever and then the child is like magically aged up or something like that and it's just these two women who just like spend kind of a lifetime together and raise a child and build a home and just work through their issues and become really really good friends you know and parents together and and things like that and that's just one example there's so many examples of this on the hundred I remember by like the final seasons I would see a scene with like five different women, several of them main characters, each of them with their own agenda, collaborating, having all these relationships. And it was really, really great. So I think that show is really, really great for platonic relationships and specifically relationships between women. Okay, and the next question is, 
I was wondering if you wanted to expand on dealing with real historical people in fiction from the K.J. Charles slash The Devil's Mistress episode. In one of her books, Seditious Affair, Charles uses not only characters but dialogue gleaned from trial documents to tell about a doomed group of rebels, and I find it personally so sad to read because I know they were really hanged. How do you think choices like this help or hinder the overall effect of what an author is trying to do? So that's, again, a really, really good question because I think it's such an interesting topic uh, and such a nuanced topic. So it's a very interesting thing when you start to touch on real people and you start to use kind of real protocols and things like that. I think it's very, very context dependent, uh, not just in, in terms of like the work itself, but also in terms of who the intended audience is. I know that, for example, in Hollywood or in English language media in general, there's much more of a convention that you can just, you know, create fiction about real people, dead or alive, and publicize it and make it very, very popular. And it's fine. I think it kind of goes overboard sometimes. Uh, I think making a show like The Crown about the Queen of England and her family, I think that's different, you know, when you're dealing with people who are public figures, who have spent their lives being public figures, who have this massive machine behind them to, to kind of manage that for them, whose entire role in life is to be a public figure. I think that's different than doing it about people who are not public figures, really, who don't have a platform, who don't have a PR team. And when it comes to dead people, <laughs> as in this case, I think it's really, I mean, ultimately, you know, who who does it harm? What does it matter? These people are, are gone. It doesn't really matter to them, you know, how they're portrayed or anything like that. For me personally, I always like to feel like an author is trying to be truly respectful of the real people that they're kind of working off of. Sometimes the author thinks that they are being respectful and I disagree, <laughs> you know, that happens. But I think a really interesting example of that is Gentleman Jack, the TV show, BBC TV show, which is about Anne Lister, uh, who was, uh, let's call her the first modern lesbian, which is kind of a PR term. Anne Lister was a real person who left behind many, many detailed diaries that she wrote in the 19th century. And the show about her uses those diaries, like diaries, letters, things like that. And even though I don't know what Anne Lister herself would think about this show, uh, not that it really matters, again, because <laughs> Anne Lister is dead, but I definitely got a sense from it that there was this huge, huge amount of respect towards this person and a desire to represent them kind of faithfully and correctly and respectfully and also honestly, you know, like, I mean, the show doesn't portray Anne Lister in only a flattering light. To the contrary, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that Anne Lister wrote in her diaries that were quite uh, controversial and not in the flirty fun way, but like in the genuine kind of controversial way or just were like really messed up. And the show shows some of that as well. So I get the sense from the show that it is trying to be very respectful towards this person, even though it is a fictionalized portrayal. So when that happens, I feel like, okay, you know, that that was, I, I'm more okay with that. But I do think it matters in terms of how we're willing to portray history. So if you're going to use real excerpts, you know, like real people, real quotes, things like that, especially if you're using something that doesn't have a huge PR machine behind it, that doesn't have, 
you know, that isn't very well known or things like that. I personally prefer to feel like the creator really immersed themselves in this material, was trying to be really respectful, you know, kind of wanted to do right by the story and by these people. But that I recognize that that is a completely arbitrary kind of standard that has to do more with my, you know, with kind of like my comfort and things like that, because ultimately that kind of representation doesn't really matter to the dead, especially dead that have been dead for like hundreds of years and don't have any direct like descendants or family that would be affected by this. Okay, and the next question is, can you compare Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings and how the two works deal with World War II and its aftermath? Lord of the Rings for Germany against the Allies and Harry Potter with the idea of the superiority of pure blood sorcerers. The answer for this one is going to be fairly short. I have read Lord of the Rings. I have read, you know, The Hobbit. I've read Silmarillion. I finished reading all of them, I think, before like eighth grade, which is also roughly the time when I started reading Harry Potter. I have also read all of Harry Potter. I've watched all the film adaptations of all of them, but I don't have very strong feelings about either fandom or canon. Lord of the Rings, I used to be a huge, huge, huge fan of that like knew all of the Silmarillion by heart, that like did trivia competitions and like wore this pendant and things like that. But then just like my interest in that world became less uh, and I haven't really ever been interested in it again ever since then. And Harry Potter, I wasn't really interested in anyway when it was coming out. I think I was in this weird age group where I was just a little bit too old for it. When the first book came out, I was a little bit too old to be its ideal target demographic. Like it came out and people who were like three, four years younger than me, like really, really loved it. And I read it and I felt, man, this is a kid's book and I'm not a kid anymore. Like it just didn't work for me, even though the books evolved and grew, but like I evolved and grew as well. I know a lot of people in my specific age group that had that experience. So I know that I'm not alone and this isn't like a weird me thing. But at the same time, obviously there were people in my age group who loved it, who read it, you know, when it was coming out. There are people younger than me and older than me who who read it as adults or anything like that. I think if I actually read it as an adult, there would be a far greater chance of me enjoying it. But because I read it at a time when I was like, I'm too adult for this stuff, you know, like this is a kid's book. It didn't really work for me. I mean, I will say like I read it after I read all of the Lord of the Rings books and right before I read things like Name of the Rose or Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco which are kind of more, I mean, they were just adult books and they were a different genre and, and I liked those things more and Harry Potter was just not a thing that I enjoyed. And again, I want to say very, very clearly that that's not to say that, you know, liking Harry Potter is childish or anything like that. That's not the case at all. So all of that is to say, I just don't care enough about either one of those works to really dig into that amazing idea of comparing how they both handled kind of the legacy of World War II. The only thing I will say is that I think it's really interesting to compare, you know, like a book that was written during, kind of before, during, after the war to Harry Potter that was written so many years after the war and based on a very different legacy at that point of what the war was. So I, I think that that's a really, really interesting thesis, a really, really, really interesting idea. And I hope the person who submitted that question writes down that idea and makes, I don't know, like a podcast or a blog post or whatever it is, because I would really enjoy reading it. I, I don't care enough about either of those canons to really like 
do anything with it myself, but like I would really, I would read the hell out of that. So I hope that you uh, do that, person who submitted this. Uh, so, you know, you have a really, really great idea on your hands. Okay, the next question is, please tell the whole class how Black Sails is a perfect series and everyone should watch it. <laughs> uh, a perfect question <laughs> uh, or a perfect prompt. I really, really love the show Black Sails. thing about Black Sails is I remember someone on Facebook or somewhere said like, I better watch Black Sails because I know Marina is going to talk about it on the podcast at some point. So I better watch it, which was obviously a joke. But I remember thinking... I'm probably never going to talk about black sales on this podcast. I deeply, 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 desperately hope that I will be able to because I love that show so much and I can talk about it for hours and hours and hours. And I have and I've written so much about it and, and all of that. But the thing about black sales is that I feel like the most interesting things about black sales that I have to say will only be interesting to people who have watched black sales. I have very little to say about that show that would be interesting to people who don't know it intimately. So, and actually, since we've talked about how I never have an interest in repeating myself or in saying things that I've seen other people say or things like that, the thing that I actually, that's kind of burning a hole in my pocket about Black Sales is its treatment of race, its treatment of uh, the transatlantic slave trade and how that intersects with piracy and how that is reflected in the show and how you can see the show kind of grappling with it and going from a show that's like, uh, yeah, we can totally do like, you know, a pirate show about like only white people um, with like a few people of African descent, like somewhere kind of in the margins. We can totally do that. That's like, you know, that's how they always do it. That's how Pirates of the Caribbean does it. That's That's standard. That's fine. And you can see in so many things and in this as well that as the show goes along it kind of evolves and evolves and evolves and it's like you can watch you can watch the creators learning and you can watch them realize like oh shit no we can't we can't do this premise with only white people not not in this time frame not not in this place you know like holy shit like this this isn't this isn't gonna work like this is this is gonna be really dumb if we just keep all of the characters all the main characters white you can see them you know kind of more and more and more and more integrate formerly enslaved characters and things like that, expanding on the backstory of like existing characters, making them more and more and more major until I think in the final season, you have some really amazing characters uh, who are not white. So I think that the show is still very, very far from being kind of perfect on this or even like very good on this or anything like that. It's ultimately a show kind of by and for white people. But that's that that's the topic that's kind of the most interesting for me to talk about because because I've talked about everything else because I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours of my life talking about this show and the things that I love about it so and this is a topic that I've rarely seen explored I haven't really seen much discussion about this in like the the you know the discussions about black sales which again doesn't mean that it hasn't existed or that people haven't said things about this you know at all but just I haven't seen it. And that kind of idea is really mostly interesting if you know Black Sails. It just, it doesn't feel like an idea that would be, you know, interesting to people who don't already know the material. And for the podcast, that was always a bad fit because the whole idea of the podcast was you don't have to know anything about any given work 
in order to enjoy the episode. So I tried not to use ideas that required, you know, knowing the source material. And this is one of those ideas. And all of my ideas for Black Sales are those kinds of ideas where you have to know the source material. And if I just tell you what it is, it's just not going to be as satisfying. You know, you'll just like, believe me, you know, sure, uh, if I can convince you. But in order to really appreciate the idea, you, you have to know the actual details. You have to be able to form your own opinion. So that's the dark secret of why Black Sails was not on the set list for season one or season two. Uh, I hope that I come up with an idea that includes Black Sails because I would love to talk about it. But that's where that's at. But yeah, Black Sails is a very, very good TV show. I love it deeply. I find that uh, some of my favorite TV shows or kind of things are things that are very difficult to talk about in the format of the podcast because the things that I truly, truly, truly love are things that I want to talk about in a very in-depth way that requires people to know the source material. The, the UK version of Being Human is another show that I absolutely adore. I think it's so interesting. I think it's so fascinating. It's some of the best genre TV ever. And I very rarely talk about it <laughs> basically anywhere. But like, you know, for the podcast, I, I, I have nowhere to kind of put it because everything I want to say about it requires you to know the source material. But anyway, Black Sails is a really, really cool show. I love it a lot. It does a lot of really, really cool, interesting things with characters. It's so well written. Please try to, I always tell people, you know, try and watch season one. If you bounce off of season one, just skip to season two and only watch uh, the Captain Flint scenes. They take up, I think, the first five episodes. Just like watch the first five episodes and you have my permission to skip every scene except the Captain Flint scenes. And... What happens with that is without fail, I've seen this work like three times now, uh, including on myself, people will start season two, they will only watch the Captain Flint scenes, they'll be like, well, this is fine, but like the rest of the show is boring and I don't care. And then by the time they get to episode five, they're like, oh shit, I really want to watch this show. So that's like a foolproof way as far as I'm concerned. But you can also start in season one and see if that works for you. Season one did not work for me. I bounced really, really hard off of season one. Anyway, it's a really, really cool show. It's about pirates. It's about history. It's it's not really about sociology, but it, it is about sociology in some ways. It certainly does a lot of really interesting things with gender. And mostly it's a show about historical narratives and how we write them. It's extremely, extremely meta and sort of the farther along you go in it, the better it gets. And it has probably one of the best final seasons that I've ever seen a TV show have. It's an extremely satisfying ending that you just want to watch over and over and over again. And it's so interesting. It's so rich. So thank you, person who submitted this question, for giving me the prompt to talk about Black Sails. And, uh, you know, this is me saying definitely if you get a chance, like watch it. It's, it's very, very good. Okay, and the next question is, what's the right way to bridge a cultural gap? For example, Americans writing about China, white people writing about black people, straights writing about queer people, etc. And is it right to try and bridge that gap at all? So this is a very, very, very like large question, obviously, kind of like asking, you know, so tell me everything you know about chemistry. This is a huge topic. I'm going to pick one random thing to say about it. I think context is super, super, super important. I think any attempt to find some kind of global answer that's, you know, that's always the answer in every situation is 
in most cases not going to be a great idea. It's not that there's absolutely no parallels, but in general, I think the the search for that one correct answer that's always going to be correct is not a great idea. I think the key is it's always complicated. If you take such a wide range of just like two people who are different from each other based on some kind of identity, context is always what matters. And every kind of instance of that is going to be different. I think the one thing that I will say that's obviously also super general and, you know, and requires a lot of context is I just, I would recommend people to immerse themselves in context when they're asking themselves these questions and not search for an easy answer that's, you know, just Google it. I mean, Googling is a good first step. Just remember that it's it's just a lot of nuance and a lot of context and there's no one size fits all answer. Okay. And the next question is, how does audiovisual pop culture use poetry? What does it mean when a character reads, writes, quotes, or recites poetry in film, TV, or video games? What does that tend to say about that character? And what does that say about our popular conception of poets and poetry? I mean, I think the cliche answer to this is that poetry is used as shorthand for intelligence or for, I mean, a particular kind of intelligence that's also kind of associated with romanticism, I suppose, or someone who's not very down to earth or things like that, or the kind of like weirdness. That that would be my kind of straight off the cuff answer. That's most of the examples that I can think of, of people quoting poetry in media. There, there are a lot of, there's a lot of media about poets. There's a lot of like movies and TV shows and books and whatever, where people are poets I'm not a huge fan of most of them. I think the the movie about called Bright Star uh, about Keats is very nice. It's very cute. But I've always been dissatisfied with how poetry is kind of portrayed. It either, usually things either get like sort of the romantic aspect of it or the creative aspect of it right, or the grindstone kind of dirty work, editing, whatever aspect of it right. Uh, but not both at the same time. Like it's it's either the craft or like the, the poetry of poetry uh, that you get right. And Dickinson, which is a show on Apple TV, an American show about Emily Dickinson, for me is really the, the best portrayal I've seen of poetry and a poet on screen. It's a wonderful show. And the thing that I really love there is that Emily's poetry is portrayed as being a combination of things that she encounters in real life, like real events that happen, her own imagination, and and her feelings and her like inner world, and the amount of like time and effort that it takes to just write it down and make it good and polish it and, and be happy with it and rewrite it and, and all of these things. And for me, I mean, I'm also a poet and I'm whatever, I'm technically like a published poet. I've been paid for my poetry, which was a very big deal the first time it happened, just because English is not my mother tongue. I'm sure many of you know that. And um, just getting published as a poet in English and like getting paid for it was like really, really cool. And I've written poetry my whole life. Uh, I don't do it like super often, but it is something that I've done my whole life. And I love, 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 love poetry. I, I'm very easy for like poetry books and for poetry readings and, and things like that. And Dickinson really, for me, portrayed poetry in a way that I've never seen portrayed before. And that felt the most like the most accurate portrayal of what writing poetry is like. 
And also her image as a poet is so interesting in being at once this kind of very dreamy, very like creative, very kind of head in the clouds kind of person. And at the same time, being very real uh, and having very real concerns and doubts and, and needs and just it's a very very good portrayal like I really really love it it's also you know it, it tries to be very accurate to Emily Dickinson's life and what's based on her letters and things like that and at the same time it uses modern pop music it, it's the kind of thing where I'm like this is this is a good way to do historical fiction anyway so that's my answer I think that's what poetry is most often used for as kind of a shorthand for and and if you want to see good representation of a poet, I would recommend Dickinson. Okay, the next question is, what are you looking for today in historical novels or series or movies? And where do you find it? Oh man, that question is so hard to answer. I grew up reading a lot of historical fiction, and it's true that I really, really love that genre. Um, but But it's so hard to define what I'm looking for rather than what I'm not looking for. I mean, broadly, I'm looking for the same things that I loved as a kid, except presented in a way that I can enjoy it as an adult. But also I'm looking for, for media that knows that I know the tropes of the genre, media that understands that I've been reading historical fiction my whole life, that I'm an adult, that I know a lot about history, if only from a lifetime of reading historical fiction. That's the kind of media that I tend to love. A few examples of this, I think I, I tend to be very biased towards historical media produced in France, but there's, for example, a really wonderful French movie called La Princesse de Montpossier, forgive my pronunciation, and uh, that's a movie that's very, very aware of itself in the sense that it knows that its viewers have seen quite a few historical adaptations. It is a serious movie, it's not a parody, it's not a comedy, it's an adaptation of a book, but it's very aware of what the tropes are and it plays into and against those tropes very, very cleverly. So I really love that sort of thing. I think that's an overall trend in a lot of movies now. I think like the new Emma movie uh, that came out a few years ago also kind of did this where it just deliberately chose scenes that showed um, historical realities that usually movies in this genre don't show. For example, a man being dressed by his valet, like the main character, stands completely nude and is being dressed by his fully dressed servant, which is not how you're used to seeing kind of protagonists these days. So that kind of thing I really enjoy. I think there's also this thing that I really enjoy in historical fiction where historical fiction isn't afraid of showing me a truly different time and truly different people because ultimately humans are humans and people are people but the whole point for me in reading about historical fiction is that these people behave differently that their norms are different that their world is different that they make different choices that they think different things are acceptable and you can take it in many different directions but broadly I just want to feel like that's the case you know that that's that the I have a true sense of being in a different time and a different place. And the characters aren't just modern people who happen to live, you know, in a different place. And by the way, that doesn't mean that they can't have, you know, attitudes or opinions or <clears throat> or opinions or whatever that we would consider, you know, modern. Because again, a lot of things that we consider modern are actually <laughs> as old as time. But it has to be presented in the right way. 
So I think if you ask me where I go for what I'm looking for in historical, in historical fiction at this point, I'm going to say an answer that doesn't necessarily correlate with a lot of things that I said before. But again, it's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> it's very difficult to pin down exactly what I'm looking for. There's many, many, many different things that I'm looking for. That answer would be Chinese media, uh, Chinese uh, movies and TV shows mostly, because that's what's most accessible to me. I often tell a lot of friends who also, you know, are Russian speakers like me, I tell them, you know, like, if you want the kind of uh, historical fiction that you used to watch as a kid, something kind of nostalgic, something to hit the spot, I really recommend a lot of Chinese media. A lot of it is like, for whatever reason, it hits that particular thing that I really love about historical fiction. And uh, I'm going to recommend a movie called uh, Red Cliff or Red Cliffs, depending on the translation, which is a really, really cool movie. It's uh, there's a version of it that's, I think, like three hours long that I watched in the theater that I don't think is very good. I think it was edited for kind of Western audiences, but it's just from in my opinion, you kind of miss out a lot. A lot of people like that version. Uh, I prefer the six hour version, which is actually two movies. It's part one and part two. That is really, really wonderful. I can say that I have shown those two movies to friends who had literally no understanding or no background at all in Chinese history or culture or the language or anything. And they all really enjoyed it. So I know that that movie appeals to a very wide audience. And I would recommend the show Nirvana in Fire which is just a really, really great TV show. I enjoyed it so much. I mean, just all of its tropes and, and just like everything that it does is so, so, so nostalgic for me for the kind of books that I used to read as a kid and like everything that I love about historical fiction. So if, if you want recommendations like that, that's where I go for um, historical fiction these days. If I just want something to kind of hit the spot, I will just go to a Chinese TV show because that's the that has the highest chance of like satisfying that craving for me or like giving me exactly what I want. That's where I go most often. And now for the final question, is there a chance that in future episodes you will talk about children's literature, fantasy, a detective novel or a romantic novel? So I think I've talked a lot about fantasy. I mean, just to pick a specific episode, I've talked about Game of Thrones uh, I've talked about A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I think I've talked about a lot of like fantasy works in different episodes. In terms of romantic novels, uh, there's also the episode about K.J. Charles, who is a romance novelist and The Devil's Mistress. Uh, so I've definitely talked about that genre. I also mention it in some other episodes. The episode on matriarchies mentions Captive Prince, which is a romance trilogy. Uh, so I've also talked about that genre and would absolutely talk about it in the future if it was, you know, relevant to ideas for any future seasons. As for children's literature, that's probably less likely just because I am someone who doesn't really enjoy a lot of children's entertainment, whether that's, I mean, just basically anything that's aimed at children, I usually don't enjoy it very much. There have been a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part, it's usually not my cup of tea. And yet again, I will add a disclaimer here for anyone who doesn't know me personally, that that in no way implies that children's fiction is somehow inferior or less complicated or less worthy or anything like that. I have plenty of good friends who absolutely love children's entertainment. Uh, I'm just not one of those people. 
different, you know, there's a bunch of exceptions. Uh, For example, I talked about historical fiction and what I look for and things like that. One of the few historical fiction kind of books in English that I've read and enjoyed, and I haven't read a lot because I usually don't enjoy historical novels in English. They're just not what I'm looking for. They they don't do (laughs) the tropes that I like. They don't like uh, do it the way that I like. But one of the few that I I enjoyed was um, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. And that book, I really kind of enjoyed it because it presented modern opinions and kind of modern characters and modern dilemmas, but it managed to do it in a way that wasn't too contradictory or too kind of blatantly, I don't want to say inaccurate because it's not quite accuracy, but, you know, in a way that didn't make me be like, oh, but this is, but this is so, this doesn't make any sense. You know, this isn't, this isn't right for this period. This isn't right for this character or whatever. So for example, that's like a YA book uh, that I enjoyed. But for the most part, I am not a good audience for children's entertainment um, or, or, or YA or anything like that. So it's less likely that I'll talk about things like that. But, you know, there are exceptions. And uh, the few things that I have liked, you know, may very well end up in a future episode. As for detective stories, I admit that I am less of a fan of uh, mysteries. Uh, I tend to just not enjoy them very much. And again, this in no way implies that they are somehow inferior or less complicated or less worthy as a genre. But for me personally, I tend to find uh, mysteries kind of boring. Having said that, I did grow up on Sherlock Holmes and I love Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I love adaptations of Sherlock Holmes. So it's very possible that I'll deal with a detective story. I will say that I have an episode planned for next season that like hopefully if next season happens, if I have the time to make it, that will revolve around Top of the Lake, which is a TV show that's a detective TV show or mystery TV show. It's about a police detective in New Zealand. And it's also about other works that that Top of the Lake ties into, but it's also about that. So I think the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and that concludes the Q&A episode. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much because this was my first time speaking completely unscripted uh, and answering your questions. Uh, I didn't even have any kind of bullet points or anything like that written down. Just a list of your questions and just answering it live. Thank you so, so much to everyone who made this podcast possible, to everyone who supported this podcast thank you to everyone who has ever shared it with a friend uh the hardest part of working on the podcast is the need to tell people that it exists uh which is a necessary kind of need because because otherwise how are people supposed to know but it's something that's the hardest part of it for me and the part that i enjoy the least and i'm just always so 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 grateful anytime someone kind of saves me a little bit of that work or or takes on some of that work by recommending the podcast or an episode anywhere in a group or to their friend or anything like that. Thank you so, so much in particular to everyone who supports me on Patreon. The support on Patreon is per episode. So if you subscribe to me there at this point right now, which is kind of in between seasons, then there will be a notice coming out before season two comes out. Hopefully season two will come out. I just started a new job, so I'm very (laughs) pessimistic about my free time at the moment. And uh, basically, you know, you won't be charged until the next season. Thank you so, so, so much to everyone who supports me there. Like the fact that people are willing to put 
money down, you know, any amount of money into this kind of project is really, really amazing. So thank you. And if you want to ask me more questions or talk to me, uh, I will be at Berlin underscore Marina on Twitter or on Facebook as Marina Berlin. And you're welcome to come talk to me. I always uh, welcome, you know, any thoughts about the podcast. Thank you so, so, so much for being here through this journey. It's been amazing and, uh, and very tiring, <laughs> but also very, very worth it. And it's such an amazing project and it's had so much amazing feedback. So thank you, everyone. Uh, or rather, thank you, specific person listening to this. Hopefully we'll meet again next season. Uh, this has been Marina Berlin. Have a wonderful week, month, and the rest of the year.